You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville Audio Podcast. Have you, uh, have you ever been to a conference or a workshop or something, and you're listening to the speaker, and they're giving a talk, and they say something that just it captures your attention? And you hear that, and for the next five to ten minutes, you're not paying attention to anything they say because you're stuck on what it is they said, and your mind's taking it down a path, and you're thinking about that. And, now, and I'm not talking about that you're disinterested. You know, sometimes you hear, and your mind just wanders because you could care less. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're actively engaged in what they're saying. You're paying attention. But what they say just catches you off guard. There's something that's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, or something they say just challenges you, or, or there's something, and, and that the next few minutes... That's just all you're thinking about, and you're just not really paying about uh, much of anything else. That ever happened to you? It happens to me a lot. <laughs> In fact, it's frequently. Now, normally, it's not a big problem. Um, normally, it's not a big issue. However, it can be a problem if it causes you to miss information that you need to be listening to or hearing. Um, most of you know there's a team of us that meets every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, part of the sermon team. You know, from all three, there's representations from all three campuses, and we're talking about the sermon. So I think you all know that the outline that's in your worship guard is the same for all three campuses. How the speakers develop that is very different, but we meet every week to talk about the outlines and just kind of work through it. And um, I fight this problem pretty much every week. Um, you know, something said, and my mind latches onto it. You know, maybe we're talking about Abraham. And then they're going off down this path of a mind like Abraham. And wait, what was this? What did that look like? And da, 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 da. It's like, if I'm not careful, they're five minutes down the road in the conversation. And, um, you know, the conversation's just gone on without me. And it, it could be a problem. Obviously, the way I've told that, you know that it has happened in the past. Um, it's not just a theoretical thing. This is part of what happens. Um, but... If we're not careful, we can miss things that we're, we should be actually hearing and listening. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning has that effect on people. Um, it's a very common passage. In fact, uh, I would suspect if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard the story or parable um, of the prodigal son. Familiar one, I think, to most of us. Now, just in case there's someone here who's just not quite sure you need a refresher course, the prodigal son is a story about um, a, a man who has two sons, and the youngest of the two sons um, is old enough, he's independent enough, that he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And, um, and so we're not, the, the, Jesus is telling the story, and he doesn't go into a whole lot of, uh, he doesn't go into any description about the other context of what's happening within family, but we know that the father does that. He essentially cashes out half of what he has of, of his assets and gives that half to the youngest son as his inheritance, and the youngest son sets off, and we're told that uh, he squanders all of it in wild living, is the way it's phrased in the NIV. And it's not too long then, it doesn't take long for the young man finds himself, he's in a foreign country, um, he's in, um, they're in the midst of a famine, he has no food, he has no shelter, he's actually, his work is to feed the corn husks to the pigs. That was the only job he could get, and he comes to his senses and realizes, my dad's servants have it better than I have it right now. And he is full of remorse, and he realizes he's made a big mistake, and so he heads off for home. And, uh, and this is where the story takes an interesting turn. In uh, Luke chapter 15, 
uh, verse 20, it says, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, what does this passage right here suggest about the father? A few things, actually, we, we could think. But there's one thing in particular for me that was just really noteworthy, and is that the father saw him first. In other words, he never got home before the father saw him down the road, which tells me that the father was looking, which also suggests to me that the father probably almost on a daily basis, at some point in time during the day, was looking down the road, wondering how his son was, if he would hopefully see him coming back down the road. He never gave up hope that one day his son would return. Well, then as the story continues, the father and the son, they have this exchange, and the son is genuinely repentant. I mean, this is not just some kind of a con thing where he says, oh, I'm going to say the right things, hopefully, you know, where I can get more money. He's genuinely repentant, as we're told in the story. He's sorry for what had happened, the way he lives his life, and the way he, he's, the decisions he made. He acknowledges his sin. In fact, he says, I've sinned before you and God. Very genuine. But his father won't hear of it. And this is my paraphrase. His father says, I am so happy. I want to have a party. We're going to have this big feast and celebrate your return. And that's uh, just what they did. And uh, so that's the, that night is the celebration. And that's where the, we pick up the story here in Luke chapter 15, verses 25 to 32. So you can follow along here on the screen as I read. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he didn't say my brother, this son of yours, one have acknowledged that they were related, um, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, again, just grateful for your word and for what it tells us and helps us uh, to understand better your love and mercy for us and how we are to relate with you, but also how we're to relate with one another. And I just pray for the insight from this uh, passage to be revealed to each of us um, here this morning in the next few minutes. And so we want to commit this time to you here as well. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, the parable that was told by Jesus was intended to be a store, an illustration of God's grace. The, the father is actually the primary focal point of the story. Even though most of it is about the younger brother and his behavior, the point of the story is the, old, is the father. The fa- and the father in the story is to represent our heavenly father. And the idea there is that no matter what we've done, God, um, or um, no matter what we've done or how undeserving we might be, 
God never gives up on us. He always welcomes us back. He is always watching and waiting for us to return to him if we have wandered away. And he will always welcome us with open arms when we do. That's the point of the story. Now, what causes us then to miss this? Um, Now, if you're like me, it's because you get stuck on the older brother. I don't know about you, but I read this story and I read about the unwise, even stupid choices that this young, uh, the younger brother makes. And I have very little sympathy for him. I I don't. I mean, I said he's made some really bad choices and and I actually, I identify with the older brother. Um, I I do. I understand what he's feeling and what, what he's thinking. And, but I think, so if you're like me, you get stuck there, but I think we get stuck then on the wrong part of the story. And obviously the story is part of the father, but even with regard to the the brother, you know, we get hung up on the coat and the ring and the party and we make a false assumption. We make this assumption that everything is all hunky-dory with the younger brother, with the younger son, that everything's back to normal the way it used to be. And we miss an important part of of the passage that's in verse 31. And that's this where the father says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Did you catch that? So what it's telling us is then that the younger son enjoyed the generosity of the father only while the father was alive. He had already received and spent his inheritance. So that while the father still called the shots, he was alive, he was the one still making decisions, all the buildings, all the animals, everything that was tangible belonged to the older brother, the older son. Once the father died, the younger son would be on his own once again. In other words, or in essence, he would be at the mercy of the older brother. So while the father forgave the son for what he did, there were still consequences, far-reaching consequences for his actions. So we realized that it wasn't just everything was fine, but there was a there was some complications there or, or, or consequences that were there. In contrast to our, the way we might receive the story, those listening to Jesus would have also gotten, gotten hung up, potentially gotten hung up on the older brother, but for a little different reason, not on the party per se. They more than us would have understood how the inheritance thing worked and that the younger brother really wouldn't have anything more uh, beyond the immediate. <clears throat> The issue with the younger or the older brother is much deeper than just petty jealousy. Are you familiar with the term shame-based culture? Um, there's, there's generally when we're talking about how a culture, how a society um, governs themselves, gen- they generally fall into one of two categories. There's either um, a, a shame-based culture or a guilt-based culture. You're familiar with that? Um, now, these are generalizations. I mean, obviously, there's, the, the categories don't fit exactly, and there's exceptions, and so I get that. But generally speaking, broadly speaking, most cultures fall into one of the two. And so the guilt-based culture, um, which is largely the West, we are pretty much organized around laws and punishment. You know, there's this legal process we follow, and so are you innocent or guilty? The focus is on the actions of the individual. Again, are they guilty or innocent? Are they right or wrong in their behavior? That's a guilt-based culture. A shame-based culture, however, which is largely, we find these more in Asia or in the Middle East. Um, They focus on relational dynamics. 
And so there the focus is on how the actions of the individual will affect the larger group. So it's not just the right or wrongness of your behavior, it's the implications of your behavior on the larger group. More often than not, on the immediate family. And so in a guilt-based culture, the question you're asking is, what is the right or what is the legal thing to do? In a shame-based culture, the question people ask is, what will people think if I do this? Now, at this time in history, Israel was a mixture of both. For centuries, they've been living under the Old Testament law of Moses. So they they had a law, a guilt, if you use these paradigms again, they had a guilt-oriented worldview um, because of their, their, their religious, the law there. But they lived in the middle of the Middle East. They lived in a culture that was exclusively um, <clears throat> shame-based in culture. And the reason why this is important is um, because then in that culture, then the proper response within this father-son is that the father should have shunned the younger son when he came back. He should have said, you know what? You made your choice. You, you, this is, this, we're, not going to, we're not going to go any further. From the perspective of the community, the older brother was right to be offended. See, this wasn't just a family squabble confined within the walls of the home. The entire town, the surrounding area, everyone in that area knew what the younger son had done. And they knew that he didn't just embarrass himself. He humiliated the entire family. It was a reflection on the entire family his actions. It wasn't just an individual response. It reflected on the entire family, the father, the brother, everybody associated with that family was affected by this. His actions were unforgivable. Has that ever happened to you? Or someone did something, they said something that just devastated you. And the words or actions just weren't hurtful. They affected the way others see you. And that's not right, is it? Just like the older brother, there might be valid reason for you to be hurt and for you to be angry. And the problem is, though, however, that if we're not careful, we can become like the older brother. His offense can cause, or when we look at the older brother, we see that his offense, his, his uh, being offended, caused him to be judgmental and bitter. We also see that his offense distorted his perspective. We kind of get the impression that he preferred his brother die or at least never return rather than be restored in relationship with the family. We see that the older brother, uh, his offense caused him to be self-consumed. You never gave me even a goat. You know, why are you giving him a fatted calf? And, and his offense resulted in a relational breakdown with both his brother and his father. I mean, it said that he wouldn't even go in the house. He was that upset and that angry. So the irony of the whole story here is that even though the older brother had done everything right up to this point in his life, he was the good son. He was the one who was, you know, he, he did what he was supposed to do. He was faithful. He was supportive. He did everything that was appropriate in both the culture and also just both with regard to faith. Even that was the case. His inability to address his hurt and anger in a healthy way in this one situation had the potential to derail his entire future. 
And because the purpose of the story was to demonstrate God's love, grace, and mercy for us, Jesus didn't go into any detail about how the older son should have addressed his anger other than to try to get him to see the bigger picture is what the father did. However, we do find some insight in other portions of Scripture. So then, with that in mind, how can we guard our own heart and mind and avoid becoming like the older brother in this story? A few thoughts. And the first one actually isn't even in your outline. Actually, I think it precedes number one that's in your outline. I think the first thing we need to do uh, to protect our, our, to guard our heart and our mind is to ask ourselves, when we find ourselves becoming emotional, we find, you know, the emotion rising within us is to, is to be able to take a step back for a moment and say, why am I upset? Why is this bothering me? And, and actually, what, what is this? Am I, am, I, am I angry? Am I embarrassed? Am I, are my feelings hurt? What is actually going on within me? And I realize in the moment, this is really difficult to do. But if you're able to do that, the next steps actually become much easier because it gives, just gives you a sense of, of perspective and it gets you a sense of, of all right, let, let's just walk through this. But once we've, 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 uh, we've asked ourselves that question, why am I upset? The next thing we can do to protect our heart and mind is choose to believe the best, not the worst in every situation. Now, um, that's number one in your outline. Number three, if you skip number two, number three in your outline, it says leave room for what you don't know. I want to talk about those, those together. <clears throat> um, you've, if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard me say on more than one occasion that it's not a good idea to make assumptions as a general rule. We shouldn't make assumptions. However, I would advocate that in there are, you know, it comes to anger, when it comes to being upset, being hurt, I think that when, we're, when, we're, when we realize there's a rift in a relationship with someone else, I am an advocate of saying that, there's, that we should always make two assumptions. Two assumptions that we should always make. The first one is assume positive intent. Assume they tried to do the right thing, they just made a mistake. So often we run into trouble when something happens to us, we immediately want to assign motive. You did this because you don't like me. You did this because you're selfish. You did this because of this. You did this because of that. And we assign motive as to why they intentionally tried to do something to us. And that never ends well. It just doesn't. Um, that, that just creates the, the, the level of conflict within us to rise up even more so. And, the, the, and that just can create problems. Assume they tried to do the right thing. They just got it wrong. Okay. Tied to that, then, is the second assumption. Assume you're missing information. All right, so you do something, say something to me that I find offensive. All right, I'm assuming you didn't do that on purpose. You said it, but all right, there's probably something I don't know. All of a sudden, for me, just to take those two assumptions lowers the the animosity level, the emotional level allows me then to actually respond in a positive way. So for me, when it happens, I've often gone to someone and say, hey, walk me through your thought process to coming to this decision. Hey, help me understand what's so in doing it that way. I'm actually asking for their help. Number two is that I'm not assuming anything. I'm saying, help, help me understand this. Whereas I look at it, it looks this way. Am I seeing it correctly? What am I missing and when someone has, it's not been, um, there's been times when someone who have actually come to me and said, hey, what's going on here? 
And I've actually said, well, here's what you don't know. And their response is, oh, okay, that makes all the difference in the world. We're good. And we just, we keep going. There's been other times where they come to me and say, what's going on here? And we talk about it and I realize, you know what? I screwed up. I made a mistake. I'm really sorry. And again, that allows us the opportunity to work on that and get that situation right. As opposed to, if I don't make those assumptions, what's wrong with you? Why are you so mean and evil to me? And, you know, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, what happens when someone comes at us like that? We get defensive immediately, don't we? We want to defend ourselves. And again, the, the situation just escalates. As opposed to, hey, when you said this, when you did this, it really hurt. Or this really upsets me. Um, Let's, can we talk about that? And then that allows us to do that. Um, you know, not too, not too long ago, uh, someone, and I forget who it was here, a part of our group, they let me know that they weren't receiving the email communications from us. Um, you know, we send out different email communications. Um, now, you they could have taken offense at that. I mean, it's possible they said, well, they just don't care about me. Or I wonder if they're intentionally trying to keep me out of that or not involve me. In, you know, but instead, they said, hey, you said something about an email here. I didn't get that. And so I, I said, let me look into it. So I looked into it, and what I discovered was that our database, when we send a lot of these out, it actually was pulling active men and women over the age of 18 who identify with the Statesville campus. And in their field, in their profile, we did not have their birthday. And so we didn't, because the system didn't know how old they were, they weren't being pulled in the report. So I said, oh, I just need your birth date. Internet, we're good. And now they, they get the email. It was something as simple as that. It was an easy fix. No one had done that intentionally. It was just an oversight that somehow that field wasn't populated. Unless they had notified us, no one would have known to actually go and investigate what was happening, and we couldn't resolve it. Instead of being offended, the older brother should have gone to his father and talked things out. He should have gone into the house and said, Dad, this can't wait. I'm really upset. We need to go outside and talk and then have the conversation. Fortunately, the father wasn't willing to let the son stay out there and stew and be angry. He actually went out to him and said, hey, we, we got to fix this. Now, I wish I could tell you that I always get this right. I don't. Betsy, quit nodding your head. <clears throat> but I find these two assumptions to be invaluable in my life. So the second thing in your outline for guarding your heart and mind is keep pouring out the poison as you confront the root of offense in your own life. Now, if you follow the news, um, it feels like we have an excuse to be offended at almost every day, doesn't it? Almost every day, somebody says something in the news or in the media that's offensive and, or that we could be offended by it. We need to be diligent about continuing to pour out poison of offense when we sense it rising up within us. Uh, I like what Ephesians 4 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. It's interesting, he had to, Paul felt the word, need to put the word brawling in there. Um, I don't know if that was actually happening in the church or not, but that's pretty extreme. Um, Get rid of the rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Continue to pour out 
Don't let it take root. Don't let things fester. Don't let things sit. Address them. Number four in your outline says, practice letting it go rather than harboring offense. When we hold on to an offense, we soon discover that the offense has a hold on us. It monopolizes our thoughts. It takes over our emotions. It, uh, it really can do a number on us over time. And that's generally how I know that something is more than Because sometimes somebody says something to us and we and just, you know what? We, we just need to let it go. I, my rule of thumb is if something's still on my mind, it's still coming up my thoughts, I like my thoughts like three days later, it's more than that. And I need, I need to actually, I need to actually go and say, hey, this is bothering me. Or however we need to frame it, but we need to have that conversation. Because it is, it is some things just, you know what, this is just me. I just need to get over it and move on and we'll be fine. And, and nine times out of 10, that's probably the case. Um, however, my rule of thumb is if, if I'm still thinking about this days later, it's probably more than just uh, me not being able to get rid of it. I love what uh, Pastor Farrell said a couple weeks ago. He says, holding on to an offense, carrying a grudge, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to, dry, to die. Hanging on to an offense is never the better option. It never is. <clears throat> Lastly, uh, number five, choose the high road of blessing. Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And one way to break the bonds of unforgiveness is to audibly bless the person who offended you. To as, as a, when you're on your own praying, just audibly say, God, I don't want to hang on to this. And you name the person by name, say, I forgive you, and I pray God's blessing on you. I'll, I'll admit, that's easier sometimes than other times, depending upon the level of hurt and what they actually did. I just know for our own sake, we need to let go of those things. It doesn't help us to hang on to the poison of offense. As I wrap up, a um, final thought here, it struck me as I was just kind of reflecting on this last night. Notice the response of the father towards the older son. He wasn't angry. He, he didn't come out and say, you know, stop behaving that way. You know, you know get over it. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't admonish him at all. He was incredibly gracious. Honestly, I think he understood why the son was upset. I mean, he knew that this wasn't an irrational emotion or feeling, that the son was probably very justified in feeling that way. But he didn't want anger and bitterness to govern the rest of his son's life. He wanted the older son to see the bigger picture. And we see this constantly within, with Jesus and his teaching and Paul. The bigger picture is always the restoration of relationships. It doesn't mean that everything's good and everything, it doesn't mean that, that everyone's always happy and everything's forgotten. What it means is that we work through these and we have the conversations, we talk about the things we need to talk about. I think a fair summary of what the father said to his son might be something like this. He said, listen, I understand why you're angry, but you're missing the bigger picture here. Your younger brother in our lives was dead. He was gone, but he's back. We can be restored. So I guess my encouragement to you this morning, if you're harboring anger or bitterness towards someone, what might be the bigger picture for you? 
What might our Heavenly Father say to you about pouring out the poison of offense to you this morning? I think there's three things, and that's the case, there's three things you can do. One, the first thing is just admit it's in you. Just recognize it. Be honest with yourself and say, you know what? This is here. I'm feeling this way. I think the second thing you need to do is just make a plan for getting rid of it. Uh, Part of it may be the need to talk to the person. Again, using those two assumptions I gave you. Assume they didn't try to do it on purpose and assume that there's information you're missing. Go have the conversation. And even if you discover that you, some of your assumptions were accurate, it's still part of how you need to get through this situation and get past it. But part of that as well, part of making a plan is to daily pour it out by choosing to bless. Sometimes it's a conscious, even daily activity to not take offense and to live in, a, in, in, in freedom. And that's actually the third thing about this plan is accept God's grace to heal the hurt and pain. Because just because we might understand the situation better doesn't necessarily minimize or negate the hurt that's been caused. And honestly, sometimes we need divine healing for that. Sometimes apology isn't enough. Sometimes we need to be healed of what has happened. And I'm confident that God desires that for all of us, for each of us. So I'm going to pray here in a second, and, and I'm going to encourage you that if, you're, if this is one of those situations where you find yourself wrestling with this in your own life, that you admit that it's there as I pray, that you say, God, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to take some steps. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to, I'm going to choose to bless. And, but then you also just receive God's grace. Just say, Lord Jesus, heal me. Heal me right now as we pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for this passage. Uh, It just reminds us again of how much you love us. This younger son did everything he could to, um, to just negate the love of the father. Um, He was um, disrespectful. He was wasteful. He did all the things he shouldn't, shouldn't have done. And yet the father's heart was continually towards his son. And Lord, that's your posture towards us, your children, your sons and daughters here this morning. Father, um, I also know that there's probably, if we were to take this story on, that there were some things, there was some guilt, there were some things in the younger son that probably needed to be healed and, and restored in his life as well. So, Father, I pray that if we're on the receiving end of that this morning, any of us who are here, that we would be able to acknowledge that in our own life. But Father, that that acknowledgement wouldn't just stay there. There would be a, 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 a desire to resolve it, to get rid of it, that we could live in freedom, that these emotions would no longer occupy our time and our thoughts. But Father, we could be free of what you, from, from what you desire, that we would be free, able to live the life you've called us to live. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and ask for you, Lord God, to fill us with your love, with your grace, and with your mercy, that we can be a blessing to others, even those who have persecuted us, have hurt us. So, Lord, we recognize that we're imperfect people. We recognize we don't always get it right. But, Father, 
we, we desire to live lives that are pleasing to you and that are free of the burden of the poison of offense. So Father, it's the name of your son, Jesus. I pray all these things. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.